Welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. We bring you free-flowing conversations with top thought leaders in philanthropy and the nonprofit sector. Sit back, relax, listen and enjoy as we share ideas and discuss topics that are important, timely, and we hope will transform the nonprofit world. Hello and welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. This is episode 45 and it was recorded on Thursday, December 17th, 2020. I'm Vincent Duckworth. I'm a fundraiser and the CEO of Vitreo Group. We are a national agency focused on bold leadership and transformative fundraising. This is our first episode of 2021. Happy New Year! For this episode, we were joined by Andrea McManus, co-founder and senior counsel at Vitreo, Wayne Steer, director of development at Fresh Start Recovery Center, and Michael Nielsen, vice president, marketing, communications, and public policy for AFP Global. Our topic is all philanthropy, good philanthropy, fundraising ethics in life, in work, and in our sector. There is the idea that all philanthropy is good philanthropy. But is it? The philanthropists of the original Gilded Age built or enabled many of our most important and hallowed institutions. Carnegie's largesse allowed us to build most of the public libraries in North America, while Rockefeller's philanthropy endowed most of our modern medical schools. Today, during the second Gilded Age of philanthropy, gifts by billionaires are regularly reviled in popular and social media. It is actually hard to find a good news angle about big philanthropy. Join me and three terrific thought and opinion leaders as we discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly of philanthropy. It's time for the Brain Trust Philanthropy Podcast. Welcome to episode 45 of Brain Trust Philanthropy Powered by Betrayal. This is our first episode of the new year. Welcome to 2021. Our topic is all philanthropy, good philanthropy, fundraising ethics in life, in work, and in our sector. We have three amazing nonprofit leaders with us today. They're excited to be here. I'm excited to be here. Let's get started. First, joining us from Calgary, Andrea McManus. Andrea is co-founder and senior counsel at the Trail Group, and she's no stranger to our podcast. Counting today, Andrea has been on our podcast seven times, six times as a guest and once as a guest host. Welcome back, Andrea. Thank you. I didn't know it was that many. <laughs> I know. I saw that look on your face when I said seven. You went, really? Yeah. yeah. I, I keep track. You've been here seven times. That's I know fine. you do. <laughs> <laughs> Andrea, we're going to hear your thoughts on the topic in just a few minutes. But before we do that, I believe you are very shortly about to become a grandma. But like everything else, in fact, you may have even said something on a previous podcast, but like everything else during this strange time, how you experience that moment is likely not quite like how you imagined it would be. Can you share with us what you'd hope to do to greet your new grandbaby and what you're actually going to do? Well, I, I think um, yeah, I, it's important to, to know that my, my granddaughter, I know it's granddaughter, uh, my first grandchild, uh, but uh, is going to be born in Australia. Yes. February 6th. So yeah. that's an important one. <laughs> if it was probably anywhere else other than Australia, I would have been able to move heaven and earth and maybe make it work, but I can't even get into the country. So it's, that's been really, that's been really tough to come to terms with that. And I just recently come to terms with, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sort of hoping for the spring, but it may not be till next fall that I actually get to to see her and to see my daughter. So, but ever since Zoom started, we've been having family weekly calls on Zoom um, with my three daughters who all live in, one lives in London, England, one lives in New York, and one lives in Australia. And my ex-husband and I, we get on Zoom every Tuesday afternoon. 
And ever since we found out about uh, Sydney expecting, um, we all, every call we have the ceremonial reviewing of the baby bump. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so I don't know, you know, we're, we're, we're planning to do things and send things and, you know, all of that. But yeah. I think mostly I will know my, my, come to know my granddaughter on, on FaceTime or Zoom. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that, that's part of the story of our time. I, um, I think, I think one of the challenges with Australia, I think you shared with us is that you actually have to, it might've changed, but you had to quarantine twice, didn't you? Once in one yeah, city, so, once in another well, city. Well, I couldn't, yeah, I, I, I don't even actually qualify to, because I, I found out recently. Oh, you're not close family. I, I'm not, I'm not immediate family anymore. My daughter's an adult, so I don't qualify <laughs> as immediate family, but but if I could get in, yeah, I'd have to fly into Sydney and quarantine mm-hmm. in a ho- government a selected hotel. And uh, pay them. Yeah, and pay them about three grand, I understand. Oh, and then uh, go to um, Victoria. My daughter goes south of Melbourne and I'd have to self-isolate there for another two weeks. So, yeah, um, yeah so it's <laughs> it couldn't be any more any more difficult. Well, we're all thinking of you, but then again, you may actually get to see some things uh, that, that not everybody sees. You might see her more regularly, almost maybe daily. Yeah, yes, yeah. And, you know, it hasn't stopped me shopping for a little baby girl. Right. Yeah, you can still stand goods, even if you can't go yourself. Well, we're thinking about that. And um, when's, when is Sydney due? February 6th. Okay, well, February is a great month. I don't know why I would say that other than it's month I was born. But um, thank, thank you, Andrea. <laughs> Thanks for that. Uh, next, joining us from Seattle is Michael Nielsen. Michael is Vice President Marketing and Communications, sorry, Marketing, Communications and Public Policy at AFP Global. It's a bit of a mouthful. I think he probably would even have trouble with it. This is not Michael's first podcast, but it is his first time on Brain Trust Philanthropy Podcast. Welcome, Michael. Thanks, Vince. Really, really happy to be here, particularly in the August company of, of Andrea McManus, who's apparently been on seven times, and I'm only on my first. Yeah, well, we'll get you on seven times. Don't you worry. Maybe right. even host. Right. Well, um, I've got gold for 2035, so that's fine. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, Michael's no stranger to anyone who's worked with or volunteered for AFP at the international level. Michael, in your communications role with AFP, you're not often in front of the microphone, but I'm so glad you decided to say yes to us. Um, I know the last few weeks of this year, you and your team and everybody at AFP Global has been very, very busy planning um, AFP Icon 2021. So I won't steal your thunder, but tell us, that's going to be straight up, right? Uh, the usual sort of deal? Yeah, exactly, right? It's Everything's just as we had planned it and envisioned it a couple of years ago. Uh, yeah, this has been a really, uh, first of all, I want to say thanks for, I know you have uh, I put some reference to the conference on the on the podcast website, I believe, or in, in, in some way getting people there. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, it's been uh, so this year. It's going to be uh, well. We are scheduled to have a conference. <laughs> Let's just say this: we'll hold a conference June twenty eighth to the thirtieth, um, and it will definitely be a virtual event. And I, I think for those who've been to the conference, who have participated in the conference earlier this year, you know, it was we had three weeks to react. Um, you know, we were, we were kind of thinking we were probably have to cancel it, but we weren't sure fingers were crossed. And, and so literally three weeks before we transitioned to, uh, a purely online conference there, there, honestly, there weren't that many options, right? We had a couple of speaker, you know, you, you literally just had the number of the sessions that you had, there weren't a lot of choices. So I think the one thing I, I, I do want to make sure people say is that we are, our plan is to have like a hundred, like the normal amount of sessions you would have. Um, you can go like, we'll, we'll have sessions that are concurrent. 
And, you know, anybody who signs up for the virtual uh, will get all those sessions, be able to, to participate in all of them. So, I mean, that's that's kind of a plus. I mean, regardless of of whether you're there uh, in person, which I'll get to in a sec or not, you will get all of the sessions, which I think is great. So we're going to have the 80, 90, 100 educational sessions that you would get. And I think there'll be some some great stuff. That's um, awesome. Yeah. Um, but then we're also tentatively right now um, planning for to be in person in Minneapolis. Um, the, those days, June 20th to the 30th, kind of Monday through Wednesday. And I think, you know, obviously safety is our number one concern and we'll have to see how, I mean, we're, we're a little more optimistic with the vaccines coming out and, but obviously who knows what the world will look like and what the state of everything will be in June. So, you know, we're trying to play it. We want to have this thing and we're obviously going to be safe. And I, I think people are excited. I think there's so many of us who want to be in person and be able to see each other. And, you know, it's, it's the largest gathering of fundraisers ever, you know, annually. And so it's a great time to meet everybody and see all those people you've been seeing year after year, if you're new to come and experience that. So um, we're trying to kind of walk that line. We've gotten some people kind of going like, really, you're, you're, you're trying to do that. And I'm like, well, I mean, you know, in six months, who knows? And I think we have, we have kind of a responsibility to at least explore that and make sure that we can, we can pull off a safe, event because I think they'll still probably be what social distancing I mean I think it will be a different kind of experience than you've been but I think that you will be there in people and I think there's there's always something about an in-person event and that in-person learning experience that is that you just you just can't get with zoom as much as we as much as we love it so um, we're working hard to have that in-person experience but again we also know that it may be we hope not but it may just be virtual only as well and and I think we'll have an incredible show there'll be still technology has changed in the last year so we'll still have networking we'll still have you know, all the sessions there'll be a lot of things that will be very very different uh and very much more encompassing uh online so it should be really exciting that's awesome um, i'm glad that you're going forward with both options michael i'm i i can't imagine what it must be like though to put on the full deal in a virtual way um did you bring on some like did you bring on some additional expertise um or do you have a firm that has some ex- expertise in this that's working with you yeah i mean it's helped that we've We've been working with a couple of firms, but we've also kind of been doing that with our summer sessions and lead. So from a virtual from from a virtual standpoint, I feel like we've got that covered. The in person will be will be yeah. We are going to be working very closely. I think um, I can't remember who it is right now, but yeah, we've we're, we're definitely working with some people about kind of how to think about putting all those people together in in a convention center. You know, assuming some of them have been vaccinated, but maybe some of them haven't. I mean, there there's a lot of things that still have to be working. We're going to have to be really flexible, and I think that's something yeah, yeah. that we've been. It's flexible and safe, and I, and I don't want people to think that oh gosh, AFP is just going to hold something because we haven't done it in a year. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because I, I we want to, but you know, in the end, if it's not safe, if it's not going to work out, we're you know we're absolutely not going to do that. So, so uh, just just before I, I introduce our last guest, uh, Michael, the 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 city, Minneapolis. When's the last time we did a, a an icon in Minneapolis? I. I've I've been at AFP a long time, over twenty years. We haven't had it there. I I, I might this might be the first year. I don't want to say that. Yeah, yeah but it's been a long time. It's been a long time. So, so I think that's great, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. I know the people in Minneapolis uh, were looking forward to it last year, and they're just looking forward to it this year. So that's right. Good. It should be it should be exciting, and it's also got some obviously some some extreme significance with what's been happening over this year. And I think we're we're you know we're we're looking at some speakers and and some events that uh, that speak to that. And so I, right. I think. Don't want to. I, I think the ideas of the idea of idea are, are inclusion, diversity, equity, and access, and racial and social justice. I think will be things that we'll be we'll be talking about a lot. We're in a certain where we don't want to 
in any way sort of downplay that or, or by any stretch. I think it's we're in that city and I think it's an important. Yeah, time. no, and Minneapolis was a center of that uh, for a lot of things this past year. So it's great that that's going. So thanks, Michael, for joining us. Finally, I'd like to introduce Wayne Steer. Wayne is the director of development at Fresh Start Recovery Center right here in Calgary and a longtime AFP volunteer. Wayne, like Michael, has been on podcasts before, but this is his first visit to ours. So welcome to the show, Wayne. Thank you, Hanson. Um, Wayne, before we get into today's topic, I wonder if you could share with us, you have had, uh, like like many of us on this call, but you, you know, since you're the on, on here for the first time, I want to get a bit of background. You've had a long AFP volunteer experience. You were, you were chapter president, you're on the AFP Canada Foundation Board, um, or sorry, the AFP Canada uh, Board itself, and, mm-hmm. and a number of other engagements as well. What's it been like in the last few years working as an AFP volunteer? Um, it's been very interesting. I've been, been blessed to be part of uh, some really interesting movements. First of all, uh, I was involved in AFP International, now Global with IDEA, and then was involved as we were developing or um, diversity and inclusion at that time, and then involved in the development of IDEA. And it was really exciting to be part of that and see how that transformed and and uh, rolled out and, and how valid it is right now and front and center really it is right now. Thanks for that, Wayne. I appreciate um, that background. We'll hear more about that as we go forward, but let's get started. Um, okay. Thank you all for joining us on our 45th podcast. Today's topic, as I mentioned earlier, is is all philanthropy good philanthropy, fundraising ethics in life, in work, and in our sector. The idea for today's show came from a podcast we did a while back. One of our guests was asked if there was good and bad philanthropy. She responded with, there is no bad philanthropy. I don't know if she's right or not, but in the general sentiment, especially over the last three to five years, is that there is indeed good and bad philanthropy. And if the media is to be believed, a lot of big philanthropy falls into the latter. So what is good and bad philanthropy? Well, I'm not going to spoil it for our guests who have lost a share on this topic, but when doing the research for today, I tried my very best to source balanced information on good philanthropy and bad philanthropy. Unsurprisingly, but a little disheartenly, I found 10 times as many articles on what what they call bad philanthropy as I found on good philanthropy. Why is it that we love to bash big philanthropy and most particularly the billionaires who make these gifts? Andrea, I'm sure you have some thoughts on this, so let's get started with you. You're on mute, but that's okay. That's a typical frame and it actually adds to the podcast. Sorry about that. (laughs) Oh yeah. Uh, No, I'm really, I am, have become really interested in this topic. Um, I've actually um, did have done some presentations on it and I've actually been reading a a fair number of books over the last mm, two years on, on the wealth and power and privilege that comes with philanthropy and how that, is applied or can be applied. And I think, you know, we've heard a lot of talk about being in the second Gilded Age. Of course, this was pre-COVID. But that and the great divide between the very wealthy, who we used to refer to as the 10% and then the 1%, and now it's gradations of the 1%. We talk about the 0.001%. And when you, you think, consider, you know, just some just some stats I'd like to throw out is that uh, according to an Oxfam report in 2017, the top eight billionaires in the world own as much combined wealth as the poorest half of the human race. That's a shocking number. 
And about 15 years ago, or, or maybe about 10 years ago, more so, that that number was not the top eight billionaires. It was the top, close to the top 20 billionaires. So again, you see that, you know, that divide growing. And then, you know, you look at things like, Three decades ago in the United States, the average American CEO made 42 times the average um, income of the average worker. Today, it's 380 times. And so we've seen that concentration of, of wealth. And with that comes a lot of power and a lot of privilege. The vast majority of the world's billionaires are white, uh, are Caucasian. And, um, and they they are often termed as elite givers. And with that comes um, a tool that they have to advance partisan goals um, and often class interests. And we've seen that across the board in terms of funding that goes to think tanks, um, institutes, uh, academies that are... are um, Putting, you know, advancing partisan causes that often um, serve the interests of of more more of the wealthy. On the flip side, we've seen something like the announcement just in the last forty eight hours of Mackenzie Scott, um, who just <laughs> announced that she gave away four point one billion in the last four months. And there's more coming. And she has given her advisors, um, you know, the challenge of accelerating the, the, the um, drawing down of her, of her wealth, her money, and accelerating her commitment to the giving pledge. And, and then we, and we also see things like Bill Gates and, and others who have almost eradicated polio around the world with their philanthropy. Um, so, I, I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> I, it, I think it's an interesting question. I think it, I think also that it has, uh, the concentration of wealth, um, has a significant, will have a significant influence on how we do fundraising in the future. Thank you for that, Andrea. I'm glad that you hit the flip side. I was worried there for a minute that we, <laughs> we went, went off and I knew that you would. Um, you know, I, I was, uh, before I, I'm going to turn it over to you in a second, Michael, I'd like to hear your perspective and then we'll go to Wayne. But um, uh, that idea that there is uh, good and bad in philanthropy, uh, the misuse of power, but also the, 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 the commitment to actually make serious change, um, good positive change that we're seeing with Mackenzie Scott. Um, I mean, I, I, I pulled together a weekly recap for the sector and I typically look at sort of the top three gifts. And uh, of course, Mackenzie just had an explosion of gifts this past week. And so I was going like, oh man. So I literally gave her the one gift spot, but then I, I linked to all the stories that I could find. So her, her piece has about 15 things and they're, they're like 50 million, 40 million, 20 million, hundred million. They're like, it's like, there's some real stuff going on. And there's, we see people out there making contributions, significant contributions to things that affect the globe, like climate change and things like that. And so, so very interesting. And I, and I, I'm with you. I, I have trouble sometimes um, uh, weighing the good with the bad, but it seems like the media spends a lot of time um, bashing and uh, not enough time, at least finding the other half. So that's interesting. Michael, I'm going to turn it over to you with that platform. Sure. I mean, I think 
part of this is like looking at the overall perspective for me, like, I don't know if there's bad or good philanthropy. It's just human philanthropy. I, I don't think we're changing. I don't think we're seeing anything different than maybe even a hundred or 200 or whenever we thought about trying to help someone. I mean, everyone has given, everyone gives with a lens through their own personal unique lens. And so I, I, to say that somehow 300 years ago, someone didn't help someone because I don't know, I liked that person more or I did this. Like we, we, it's, we're dealing with the same issues that I think have been around since time began and people started helping people. Like who, who, who gets the benefit of this particular program, whether it was, I don't know, in the medieval ages or whatever you want to say. Right. So I think we now have, however, have a system of information like the internet and the World Wide web where we, we know all these things. We know so much more about people. So we, then we try to define, well, is this person giving because of this reason, or is this person giving because of this reason? And so we automate, and now we have our camps, we have, you know, uh, conservatives and liberals. And so it, any kind of giving becomes a statement about not just who I am as a person, but how I feel politically. And then how that means I must view this in this way and that way. So I think um, in that particular sense, I don't think we're dealing with anything new. Um, and I, I, so it's always easy to kind of bash on um, bigger donors because I think a lot of the things that Andrea mentioned, some, some of the unfairness that people feel and that kind of thing. And, I, and, and a lot of that is may very well be worthwhile and absolutely legitimate. Um, but I, I think if we learn it from that larger view, it's we're still seeing the same things always. And and when you mean philanthropy, do you mean actual charity or are we talking about philanthropy, like the organized philanthropy that we're thinking about right now? So I think there's a lot of issues for me in that um, trying to figure out whether philanthropy is good or bad. I, I do say though, I, I will say, you know, you see some of the things that get attached with some of these gifts. And I think that's where I tend to go. I tend to start thinking about whether whether philanthropy, as I know it, in terms of trying to help out the greater good, is actually a good philanthropic gift, whether, you know, how much control the donor gets and that sort of thing. Um, and so, but again, I think those are issues that we've always had, um, but we just see them now more pronounced with the amount of wealth that people can give, with the amount of control that they can have through laws and regulations and things that we can we can put in place so i don't know i'm probably not coming down very hard one way or the other i, I like to i like to straddle the fence Vincent. but um i i think it's it's much more nuanced than good or bad i mean obviously i think i think we probably all agree with that um and, and i think a lot of it just starts with what we think of as charity versus philanthropy and we you know i i still deal with people who think charity and philanthropy is giving to a soup kitchen right and don't understand exactly what modern philanthropy means so people are coming at this from a whole a whole bunch of different views and i think that is something that i don't know if we can ever kind of overcome i mean like we have to start that education process right it happens slowly but surely but there's there's a lot of things people come at this kind of discussion from a lot of different viewpoints and so i think it's it's hard to say good bad um uh, that sort of thing well, I'm so surprised that the director of communications at AFP Global straddle defense on this, but I'm kidding, of course. But, uh, but I, and I know that there are other things that AFP has taken a stand on. So I, you know, and, and also, you know, try to help people understand around philanthropy. It is interesting, though, in this time that when we do this, we keep edging philanthropy towards money. Right. And that's, that's, that's probably our own fault and, and so forth. But, uh, and I know, Andrea, you have lots of other thoughts on this. I'm just going to get a few points from Wayne and then maybe have you guys tag into what you've heard from each other. Wayne, if you're okay, I want you to share with us your thoughts on good and bad philanthropy. Um, sure. Michael said that um, it's not good or bad. It's always been there. It's not new. Yeah. Thank you, Vincent. And um, I think, I think that um, 
you have to look at the intent of the people that are donating to, to and and some of it is incumbent upon the charities themselves to have a good gift acceptance policy to make sure that the uh, gifts they're accepting are within their their parameters. For instance, I work for a men's alcohol and drug addiction treatment center, Fresh Start, that you mentioned earlier, and we have a policy against taking gifts from big pharma or, or um, um, alcohol-related companies for a certain reason. But um, beyond that, there may be uh, donors that step forth and say, I have really have a passion in this. And whatever this is may not fit with the mission, vision, and values of a particular charity. And some charities will um, look at the money and disregard the, the intention behind it, getting back to your, what um, uh, what Michael touched on earlier. But uh, if, if they don't have a meaningful conversation saying, well, this is what we do, this is what, where we are, uh, we would love for your gift to fit in with uh, something that relates to what we're doing and what, what our objectives and goals are in the future, we would love to. And, and also having the, uh, um, I guess, the courage to say, well, if we accept your gift under these circumstances, then it will take us off on a different um, tangent that uh, may not be good for the charity overall. And uh, I've been in a situation where I've uh, I've had people contact me based on gifts we've accepted to say, well, that gift might uh, jeopardize my gift to you because I see it as being something else, and and so it's it's kind of a tricky situation, and and um, there are I don't think there are any really easy answers, but I think it's really coming back to uh, uh, the charity knowing what their what their direction is, what their mission is, and um, trying to find um, donors that that gel with that. And if, if the donor is dead set against doing anything that involves the mission, then we as fundraisers think it's incumbent upon us to help them find some venue for their uh, gift that really gels with what they want to do if it's not with our charity then then there may be another one and, and hopefully others will uh, do the same thing for us if they find something that's find a donor that really wants to give a gift that wants to take it in a direction that uh, that charity is not um, equipped to uh, work with that gift may, might come to us if it's if it's a fit well, that's a good uh, platform for my thought that came up during this. I'm wondering what's our role in this as professionals and as um, association volunteers? Um, do we have a role or are we mute? Uh, what's our role? Andrea, you've got yourself off mute, so yeah. you don't want to be <laughs> yeah, mute. I think we definitely have a role. Um, Michael mentioned something about, uh, uh, you know, philanthropy in the past, you know, 100, 200, 300 years ago. If you look back at the turn of the 20th century, um, during the time of what was known then as the first, the first Gilded Age, where modern day philanthropy at that time really um, took a turn was with uh, to more to what we know, how we know it today, um, was with the the robber barons who all, you know, the Carnegie's, the, the Bronfman's, the Rockefeller's, who all had, uh, that was in the middle of antitrust, uh, the antitrust movement in, in large, largely in the U.S. again. But they they needed to do something publicly for their reputations. 
and they all started foundations. And those foundations, they they have made amazing impact around the world. Uh, you look at Carnegie, I mean, in, in the whole library movement, you know, you know, community libraries um, funded, I don't know how many libraries across uh, North America. And I think that that, that um, putting that structure around their philanthropy, I, I believe, and from just from what I've read, that that really helped shape fundraising as a profession because that, that was, I mean, I think that goes back to the, you know, to the beginnings of, of AFP, which was NSFR and, um, you know, coming together and needing a, a code of ethics to, to, um, for, for this emerging profession. And I think, you know, in the last 20 years or, or since with the giving pledge and, and with what we see now and this talk of the second Gilded, Gilded Age, it's going to have that, that equal, um, an equal impact on how we do our work. Everything from the thorny ethics questions that can be around this because all of a sudden you've got somebody's name on your building and whoops, well, now that person's in jail for whatever. Um, not that that didn't happen before, but it just happens so much faster now. Uh, and, you know, smacks you over the head before you <laughs> even know it was happening because of social media. So I think definitely there is, uh, uh, we need to be paying attention to this and we need to be adapting fundraising to be modern fundraising for modern philanthropy. Thanks for setting that stage, Andrea. The um, the first Gilded Age, of course, as you correctly pointed out, really did set the stage for modern fundraising too. Um, mm. And so I'm, I'm very curious about this, you know, for lack of a better word, the second Gilded Age with a lot of them, you know, are, are they're, I guess in some ways you could characterize some of them as the modern day robber barons. And I'm saying that with quotation marks around, I, I don't want to be too pejorative there, but just, you know, there is comments about people like Jeff Bezos and, and others who are seen to be having an accumulation of too much wealth. Um, and, and, and well, not just seen, they are accumulating a lot of wealth. The question is whether it's too much. And so they, in many ways are like those Rockefellers and Carnegie's and, and uh, Bronfman's in, in, in that same sense, but their approach is, isn't, isn't, has, is a slightly different. Uh, and I'm wondering if, if, uh, if that's what's changing philanthropy a little bit, or if philanthropy needs to help change them, <laughs> you know, like, uh, is it, what's our role to help educate them about uh, why some of their, their choices in philanthropy might not actually have the same impact as building libraries across an entire continent or medical schools like Rockefellers did across an entire continent. Uh, what, what, what's happening with these modern folks? I'm curious, Michael, you're off mute. You have a thought? Well, it's interesting because I, we've talked about a lot about history now, and, and I think we look at our donors changing, but I think you're right. Like we have to look at the evolution of our profession. And I think AFP, like I think as, as Andrew mentioned, you know, we were formed in 1960 to create a donor, create a, uh, code of ethics and the donor bill of rights. Like we were very focused around individual fundraisers and the profession. And that was our thing. It was very internal. We had to build the research and the code and best practices and all these things that make up a profession to, to establish in some ways where you could argue, we're still trying to work to establish the profession, gain that, that worldwide reputation and respect. Um, but I think now we're also, we have to be, we continue to evolve. And so I think it's actually less looking at 
what we do as now where we do it and what structures we do it in. And I think that's really what we're trying to, we're, we're rubbing against now because it's less about, again, I'll go back to, you know, intent. Like, I, I don't know how you can judge someone's intent fully, right? Like they may do these things for this reason. They may give this money for this reason, but it, to me, it's more about the structures in which they're doing it. And is the system of philanthropy good? And I think that's really where I find this question so interesting because I think you can argue till the cows come home about whether, you know, like Wayne was talking about, like, you can, maybe this gift isn't good for his particular organization because it comes from big pharma. It might work for another organization. Like you can, those are going to be questions about philanthropy. We're going to be arguing for 200 years on and, and more into the future. But to me, the, the questions are coming down and we're seeing this, I think, in, in a lot of the questions that are being asked about fundraising and philanthropy. Do we have the right structures and are we, are we working with a system that isn't necessarily good or the best for the most people? Is our system of philanthropy because of because of of how it's been set up over the years, do we have these big philanthropists who can have much more influence than they possibly should about setting what it is we should be focusing on? Um, there's this argument about community centric fundraising coming out now. Are we too focused, in fact, on the needs of our donors uh, to the extent that we haven't thought about what is the what what is our responsibility to the community and the people we serve? What's more important? Because when you start talking about donor centric fundraising, it makes it sound like the donor has to be everything. And and our code of ethics in a lot of ways reflects that. And something that we have we have a donor bill of rights that puts the donor right at the at the at the, at the center of this. And maybe that's not always quite right the right way to do it. I mean, that's maybe we need to be thinking about community. Maybe we. Maybe we need to look at a system where, you know, we have private foundations and others. Do they need to be giving more money? Uh, have we put too much focus on certain things? So I, I think for me, the evolution of us in AFP has to be always about, we're always going to be looking at the profession and how to advance the profession. But we have a bigger responsibility now. I and mean, we see that we have to address the ideas, uh, the principles of idea. We have to look at um, gender equality. Uh, we have to look, you know, that's why we've started looking at sexual harassment in the profession and all these issues that aren't about fundraising per se, it's about fundraising in the world and the workplace and how, what is our responsibility to each other and to whole all of society. And I think that is a bigger, that's a big thing that we're, we've, we're just starting to grapple with. And so I think that gets to the issue of good versus bad philanthropy more for me than necessarily talking about the intent of a major donor who could have all sorts of reasons for wanting to give. Some that well, we might agree with and some we might. We might I'm, Andrew, I'm going to grab you in just a second. We might rename yeah. this episode to uh, good or in bad philanthropic structures. Uh, I love that idea that it's not, it, we may have yeah. been focusing on philanthropy or the philanthropists. Andrea. Well, just to, it, what, um, what Michael was just saying, just, I found it interesting in the statements that Mackenzie Scott released, uh, that her team is looking at, um, I don't have it in front of me, but they, they were, they're look, they're, they're looking at, they're still looking at some, Three, four hundred other organizations. Uh, what they, um, how those are, you know, the impact. Looking at um, how those organizations are managed, but also how they treat their staff and the community. I thought that was really, really interesting. That gets to those points, um, Michael. That I think we're all dealing with, you know, more so these days around sexual harassment and racialization and and you know and power and privilege. I don't think um, the concentration of wealth is an indicator that there is bad philanthropy at all. I, I think I would err more on the side that philanthropy generally does does good things. 
um, the, the, I think the issues around, um, you know, that great divide <clears throat> and the, the gap between the super wealthy, uber wealthy, and the, I think that's a, an issue uh, of which philanthropy is only one uh, indicate element of that. Um, but, but I think, yeah, I mean, being the eternal optimist, I would, I would certainly think that philanthropy generally is, is a good thing. It's, it's a powerful force in civil society. And, and I think a lot of us who work in the profession and a lot of us who work at the associations that, that work with the profession, um, would feel that that's mostly where that needle lays, but that's not what the general sentiment is out there. And so it's curious to see that, like I said, I had a real tough time finding, I, you know, Googling things like, um, you know, give me, uh, why billionaires make a difference, you know, was one of my terms. <laughs> you find nothing on that. It's, there's a, there's just a big bash out there. Wayne, you've been sitting back for a few minutes. I see you, you're, you're, there's a little bit of smoke coming out of your ears. So you've been thinking, um, what's going on with you? Well, I just wanted to bring it back to, um, uh, precursor that you mentioned about uh, uh, philanthropists in the news and philanthropy bashing and that sort of thing. And and um, I've, I've been driving around Calgary the past little while. I've heard hear these ads for these really high ticket items on the radio, like uh, Maserati of Alberta is, uh, is uh, offering you the great experience and all this sort of stuff. And I'm thinking, you know, in these times, there's a lot of uh, people that really need a lot of help and we're disconnecting all this sort of stuff. And then, then you hear ads like that. And I, I don't, I have, part of me wonders if the media is bashing the philanthropist because they're fueled by consumerism and, and the, the organizations that pay their bills and put the, uh, put the ads in the paper are consumer oriented. So, um, um, they have, they might have a hidden agenda in some respects. I'm not being a conspiracy theorist, anything, but, uh, you know, follow the money. And, uh, <clears throat> and an, another point along those lines is that, um, um, lost my train of thought, but, but, um, more or less, you, you hear a lot of, uh, you don't hear a lot of celebration of philanthropy in the news, but you do hear a fair bit of uh, bashing of philanthropy. And I, I would think that uh, stories of the great things that philanthropists are doing would help inspire people rather than um, the other way. And, and there, there seems to be a lot of people out there that are, that are not philanthropic in, in nature. And, and perhaps those are the ones that are gobbling up the, uh, the articles that say philanthropy is bad or big philanthropy is bad and this sort of thing. And, you know, reading one article about, uh, uh, the tax advantages for those that make more money and the thousand dollar gift to, to, uh, somebody that's ultra wealthy, maybe, um, cost them $600 and somebody that's not so well off a thousand dollar gift may end up costing them $800 once all the tax implications are, are um, taken into account. But the, the reality is that the one that makes a, a few million dollars a year has uh, a better opportunity to make a larger gift and, and make a difference. Not that any gift is any greater than anybody else's, but uh, I, th I think the just the act of giving is along the lines of a widow's might give, give what you're able to give and give with a good heart. And, uh, as we're recording this, it's right in the middle of, uh, of Hanukkah. So one, one of the mitzvahs is to, uh, give, 
at the level, I think the highest mitzvah is to give at the level where only you and God know that your gift has been made. And uh, that's pretty altruistic. But uh, if we had more altruism in the world, I think we'd be a better place. Maybe that's a pie-in-the-sky thinking, but uh, there's something to be said for that. I was taking a few notes there, Wayne. There's like a lot of things to unpack from what you said. Starting off with the bias in media, get out, right? <laughs> so that's interesting. Um, fake, I'm news, fake news, fake news. Fake news. <laughs> um, I'm curious, though, about the structures. I, 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 We don't have to go down that path. But, you know, Andrea, you put in a great article out to our team the other day about um, the, 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 the tension or friction uh, between donor ad- advised funds and uh, private foundations. Right. Yeah. That was in the Wall Street Journal um, yeah. on Monday, I think. Yeah. Um, I mean, you I, know, donor advised funds are there. You, you love to hate or I mean, there's a, a lot of concern. I mean, they've grown so rapidly. Um, I think, and Michael, you could probably correct me if I'm wrong on this, but Fidelity Trust is is now has been for a number of years now the largest foundation in the United States. Absolutely. Um, and they're not subject to the same rules as the as the private foundations. So, um, in terms of you know spend what the disbursements, what they what they have what they can spend, so have to spend. So, um, and it's all anonymous, and so that's another concern from the perspective of, of philanthropy. I think there's a a lot of um, you know. And specifically in that article was talking about a proposal to uh, forgotten the, the two people who made it, but uh, a proposal to, um, to correct, to level the playing field, I guess is, is it's a better, um, it's a better way to say it. Um, but I think, you know, the, there is, a, I mean, it, it gets to, I mean, this gets to endowments. Uh, you know, in the early days of the pandemic, we were reading a lot about um, the amount of money that was tied up in a, in big endowments, you know, like 50 billion in, yeah. in some endowments, and of which only, you know, maybe 3% get spent every year. Um, you know, that makes up, but then the, the flip side of that is all the charities that haven't had any reserves and the how they've suffered during the pandemic. So it's, um, there are a lot of issues. I think there are a lot of structural issues and I think we'll we'll see where they go um, post post COVID. And I'm hoping that I never ever hear somebody say, Oh, well, why do you have all that money in reserves (laughs) anymore? I hope that's, that's gone from our lexicon. Yeah. That's an interesting comment, um, Andrea, because on one hand um, we had all these, Funds locked up in in things that were not that liquid, uh, however you want to define them, right? And in a time when you needed uh, uh, some short term liquidity and and so forth, like those big endowments. At the same time, organizations that had something locked into place in reserve um, have done better than those organizations that just had nothing. Um, and in fact, some of those organizations that had no reserves are not here anymore and will likely not be here uh, in the near term future. It's one of the largest callings. Um, to use that word uh, of the of the nonprofit uh, societies, I, I'm, I'm like I'm sure we're likely to see in a generation. Yeah, Michael. No, I, I think that's right. I mean, I, 
again, I mean, you quickly say, you know, what's, what, what's what we say all the time in times of a crisis or when things get bad, the organizations that suffer the worst are the ones that don't fundraise. They pull back and because they feel like, oh, it's not our time to fundraise. And yet those are the ones that suffer the most. And so, yeah, I, I, you know, you're absolutely right. It's, we, we, it's the whole reserve thing. And when we should fundraise again is, is all about this kind of public perception. I mean, I go back to what Wayne said about, uh, about the about the media and and giving oftentimes, particularly with with major donors and millionaires and billionaires, the millionaires and billionaires who put themselves out there um, to make a gift are the ones that are criticized. What about the millionaires and billionaires who don't make gifts at all? Right? Like there's there's well, hello, there's like a probably a very large contingent of those who who whose charitable giving is is not at all representative of what in terms of percentages of what the average person uh, you know making fifty thousand or less might give. So I think. It's always easy to, you know, as 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 we all know, it's always it's always much easier and exciting to write a negative story um, than necessarily a positive one. But I think those are the sorts of things that are kind of been baked. You know, it's one of the issues that we also we know when we talk about good versus bad is we have this public perception, and obviously there's a lot of populism right now. I think in general, and and this idea of, of the haves and haves nots, as, as Andrea alluded to earlier, growing, and it, it makes a lot of sense. So I think that's another issue when you when you talk about it, because again, we we're starting these conversations at different places with some some overlays that just aren't quite, you know, people just don't know about what charity, and I think that's the issue too, is that people conflate charity with philanthropy. Charity is is all the things we've talked about, all the good things. And this idea of organized philanthropy in our structures, we try to put charity and all the good things into this organized structure of philanthropy that we've created that most people don't know about because a lot of our structures are made for rich people, right? DAFs and private foundations and endowments that your average low-level and mid-level donor doesn't know anything about. So, they hear all these things and it's just literally, as, as Wayne mentioned, it's just another tax write-off for, for rich people. So trying to have a conversation about good or bad philanthropy, of course, it's going to focus on the bad philanthropists, major donors who, in in the view of people who've messed up or haven't done this or, you know, are conservative or liberal or whatever. And so I think that is, it's just another, it's another point in trying to kind of talk about, you know, good philanthropy or bad philanthropy. What do we really mean when we think about philanthropy? Do we really mean charity? Or we're we really talking about all the all the things in place that make up philanthropy again. So I know it's it's there's so many parts about this that I think are really are really interesting. Andrea, um, I I don't really draw. I'm not I'm not sure I'm, if I'm um, misunderstanding your comment, Michael. But I don't really draw a distinction between a charitable gift and a philanthropic gift. Um, I understand. I agree with you that the philanthropic structures that we've created, uh, you could ar- very well argue that they favor the favor the wealthy, cer- certainly, and I think tax regime regimes do as well. Um, but I, you know, I, there, I I think there are charitable acts just around the definition of the word. Well, that was you know that's very charitable of you, for example. Um, you'd be less inclined to say that's very philanthropic of you. Right. But uh, I, I keep, you know, I always remember um, in the, I think the maybe the second year that the Calgary chapter that we did National Philanthropy Day, our philanthropist of the year that year was a woman who for 20 years, she had taken a grocery cart around her community and picked up bottles um, at everybody's house, and every week she would take those bottles to the depot and take that money to a local women's shelter. Mm-hmm. And I found that very moving. Um, and I, to me, that's in this in the spirit of philanthropy. Um, so 
so I, and I liked your comment early on about, you know, we all give through our own lens. Um, and I think that sometimes, you know, what we know people, most people get most the most popular reason, common reason people give is because they want to, they've been touched by cause they want to, you know, somebody they or themselves, or you want to pay it forward, you want to pay it back. Um, I think what's different with large scale philanthropy is, is, is it is more visible. And when it goes wrong, like, for example, Mark Zuckerberg and 100 million to the New Jersey education, K-12 education system, it's, it's front page news because the scale of it is so big. Um, but he and his wife have done other things that, uh, you know, I think they learned from that. Um, and their intentions, think, were, their intentions, their intentions yeah. with that gift to New Jersey were good. It's just that their, their, their experience and research around it and, and maybe the underlying, you know, deep thinking wasn't there, but I, I, I hear you, Andrea. Um, yeah, I should, I should point You're absolutely right, Andrea. I, I'm, you charitable philanthropy, charity and philanthropy are used interchangeably. And I, I, I think of them in my mind as I'm trying to make a distinction between the two, but I should have made that more clear, but you're absolutely right. There's for most, there's not a, a huge difference between charity and philanthropy, but I think for me, I always think about philanthropy as more organized philanthropy and then charity is kind of this pure thing, but that's my own particular difference. Well, I, I, I do. I would challenge us as professionals and as an association on how well we're doing about drawing those two together. Um, I do think that, that a lot of people have their own views of charity that don't include philanthropy. Um, and that's why you see on a, on the, when a Mackenzie Scott gives away $4.1 billion and the story is awesome. And the first two comments are great. And the next 75 are really, you know, not very friendly. Um, and that's most of those not friendly ones. If you, I think if you dig into them, leaving the trolls aside um, are people who expect um, or who are comparing it to a soup kitchen type charity and not the impact type uh, in, uh, philanthropy. So I do think that we could do better. And on that, I'm, I don't often take the last word, but I'm also mindful of people's time. And I uh, I just want to uh, draw this to a close. We can definitely have a longer conversation about this and we should in the new year. I want to thank each of you for taking time to be with us today. I really appreciate it. Um, um, a great panel. I want to give you each an opportunity to also share with our listening audience something that you want them to hear uh, in the new year, something to take forward. And we're going to start with you, Wayne. What do you want our listening audience to know or to hear or to think about as they go through 2021? Uh, well, <laughs> 2020 has been a brutal year in a lot of respects. Uh, what are you saying? <laughs> social and physical isolation so uh what i'd like to say is that i hope everybody has a, a wonderful 2021 uh be kind to one another um be thoughtful um and uh try to connect in safe ways and we look forward to being able to connect uh physically once it's safe to do so but uh um you know looking forward to better times for all and thank you Thanks, Wayne. I am. I'm sorry. When you said getting together in safe ways, I actually thought safe ways, the store. And I thought that's perfect because Andrea had a, a little end run uh, the other day about how to have a larger group. If it was a funeral, we're allowed more people. So if you if you're giving if the, if, if the wine is passing on or something, maybe we can have more people. But I heard Safeway. That's great, Wayne. Um, okay. Andrea, over to you. Oh, you know, goodbye 2020. Don't let the door hitch on the way out. <laughs> I think we're all, we're, we're all there. But uh, I think, you know, I, 
fundraisers, I would challenge all of us, we, we need to really be paying attention to what's happening in our environment um, coming out of this, because I, th- I just think that there's going to be some real opportunities, but also it's an opportunity for us as a profession to be ahead of the curve and, and to lead our organizations that way. So um, there's a silver lining in everything. And I, I think this is going to impact both philanthropy and how we do fundraising for, you know, the next several decades. So, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Andrea. You have used the word silver linings a number of times, um, and I'm, I'm glad that you continue to bring that up. Obviously, there's lots of challenges in this past year. It, I, too, believe it's an inflection point for the entire sector, and we'll look back two decades from now and see that up and down points, uh, and, and you you helping us focus on the up points is really great. So thank you for that. Michael, you get the last word today. What do you want the audience to hear or know? You can give us a plug from AFP. You can talk about your awesome haircut, um, the dung painting behind you, whatever you like. It's just a shame people can't really visually see this because it's just, it's a fascinating. Yeah, you're a handsome man. (laughs) Um, Thank you. And it's always dangerous to give me the last word, but I would echo everything that Wayne and, and Andrea said. I think I guess I would kind of offer both a word of caution and optimism. I think 2021 will definitely be better, but I think 2021 is also going to, is, is also going to have its own pitfalls. And I think maybe a little more of it will be kind of emotional. I, I, I think about, you know, we're all excited about, about a vaccine, but what happens when there's problems with a vaccine? I think we're going to see a lot of up and down fluctuations, maybe with donors uh, and just people, you know, trying to keep connected. And some people are going to want to run out and do all the things they used to do two years ago. And there are going to be some people who are like, not ready to go out until 2022. And I think it's as fundraisers, we've got to be, uh, as Andrew said, sensitive to what's going on outside, but also just very sensitive with our individual donors, because some of them are just, you know, we're going to react 180 degrees differently to these very powerful things that are going to be happening. And we're going to be happy in one moment, and we're going to be really sad the next moment. And I think that's going to be, for some reason, I feel like 2021 is going to be much more pronounced about that. Because I think we have, as humans, we're like, it's over. Yay. Everything's good. And we're going to run into a lot of things like, oh, things are never going to be the same way. I just, you know, I, we're going to have a new normal. And so I certainly caution fundraisers to certainly be thinking about that both as a mass of donors and then as, as when they're working with their individual donors as well. But also 21, you know, hopefully in six months, you will all be in person at AFP Icon in Minneapolis, Minnesota because AFP is your resource for everything fundraising. So oh, that was awesome. Yeah. Great plug, Michael. <laughs> I'll um, use my radio voice there for just yeah. a sec. So, so I, I think maybe, maybe in 2021, if I'm hearing you correctly, we'll have to add a line at the front end of the donor bill of rights that says donors are people too. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, our gift, another brain trust philanthropy powered by Vitreo has been committed. Well, that's about it for this episode of Brain Trust Philanthropy. I hope you'll join us next time when we revisit our Trends in Philanthropy series with a focus on human services philanthropy. We will be joined by Sarah Jordan, Executive Director at the Canadian Mental Health Association, and by Arlene Adamson, CEO of Silvera Seniors Housing. Until next time, take care, stay safe, and stay sane. We look forward to talking with you soon. Brain Trust Philanthropy is powered by Vitreo and is produced by Nicole Nardi, Katja Asomanning, and me, Vincent Duckworth. Brain Trust Philanthropy is produced in beautiful downtown Calgary, Alberta. Follow our show and engage with fellow listeners on Twitter at Vitreo Group. That's at sign V-I-T-R-E-O Group. You can listen and subscribe to Brain Trust Philanthropy on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, 
or by visiting our website, betrayogroup.ca. Wishing all of you success in your mission, peace in your lives, and hope in your hearts. I'm Vincent Duckworth.